So um, it's been a very busy period of time for me. Personally, I've been teaching a lot the last three weeks. Um, and what I thought I would like to do tonight to kind of recheck in here is do questions. And um, I like to do questions because then I don't have to think about what to talk about because mm -hmm. you can ask a question and then I'll talk about that. Um, so think about what question or consider, or contemplate, one question would you, like if we were sitting down at a cafe and you had one question you wanted to talk to me about, what would that be? Or what would be the most interesting question you would like to hear me talk about or even attempt to talk about? Uh, you could do, you know, Dharma challenge question also. It's <laughs> fine, totally fine. Um, or whatever question might be most relevant, personal, vital to you. The more, the more juice there is for you on the question, usually the, the more interesting the question is for all of us. You know, usually transfers to many of us. So we'll just sit for a moment, see what question, you know, what, you know, the other way you can think about it is what do you want me to speak to tonight? And then ask a question about that. And if you could stand, helps me hear the questions. Thank you. I've heard about uh, body scanning as a technique uh, and uh, using that to, I guess, clear emotional sticking points. Uh, but I don't really know a lot about it. I'm sorry. Okay. So the questions about body, what's called body scanning or body sweeping. And the context for body scanning, body sweeping, is that um, the tradition we teach in, the insight meditation that we teach, mindfulness meditation, comes from Southeast Asia. And the, the, the style of meditation we do, insight meditation, is the name is Vipassana. Vipassana means insight. And Insight meditation is taught in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, and it's um, taught in a variety of ways. There's not just one way to teach mindfulness meditation or insight meditation, but there's a variety of skillful means, including the four foundations of mindfulness, as we'll teach it on the day long on the 30th of September, um, or um, there's ways that mindfulness is taught by doing this body sweeping, or there's a way, let's say, mindfulness is taught by doing very, very deep, intensive breathing for 45 minutes. And people know about Stan Groff's work, the holotropic breathing, just a few. So in Asia, there's a version of that. It predates Groff by, I don't know, a couple thousand years. but. Um, but where you, you go into the meditation hall, instead of saying, oh, be with the breath or be aware of the breath, the, the um, instructor will do this. He'll say, breathe as deep as you can, as fast as you can, for the next 45 minutes or hour and a half. So you'll breathe something like this. And even in five minutes, you get pretty stoned. <laughs> and, and then at the end of 45 minutes or an hour and a half then, then you stay still and you be mindful of what's there you be mindful of that state of consciousness another way to teach mindfulness meditation body sweeping is taught in the Burmese style of Uba Kin and has come, been popularized mostly in this country by two people um, uh, Goenkaji who was one of his main students, and Ruth Dennison, also one of his main students. And, um, and the way that I learned it from Goenkaji was that you start at the top of the head 
and you start sensing, feeling whatever sensation is at the top of the head and then you sweep the attention through the body systematically every part of the body just keep moving your attention through your body through everything and there's a way to, there's a whole schema that they'll teach you to do it in that form and you go from the top of the head to the tips of the toes and back up again and that's one sweep and what you see, what, what happens is you, uh, you're mostly being mindful of sensation. You're being mindful of the sensations of the body. And what happens as you do that is you see the sensations are changing, they're impermanent. Because you keep going through the same territory and it's almost never the same twice. So you get a very strong sense of impermanence very quickly. And then other things start to happen where the body starts to dissolve or become like light, or it becomes dense and mud-like and thick at different times. It keeps changing every time you go through, and you learn how to not be attached to the body in a certain way. And, and as you keep going, as you keep working with it, it, it's not so much that it's for working with emotional distortions, but it's working with any distortion of identity um, uh, less than an ultimate understanding of who and what we are and it's a very powerful practice it has its pluses and minuses like any practice it's a very strong concentration practice deep samadhi it's not so from, for some people not for everybody but for some people it's not so easy to transfer to daily life the, the, you know, most people aren't walking through their life doing the sweeping. And so, that, and I'm, I'll compare it, maybe it's not so great to compare it, but I'll compare it in the way we teach the four foundations of mindfulness, where we're mindful of the body, mindful of sensation, mindful of breath, mindful of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of what's called dharma or realities, it's, it's a much easier transfer into daily life to be mindful of we're walking wherever we're walking or we're looking wherever we're looking or we're feeling something however we're feeling it, whether touching or emotionally. We can be mindful in that way in daily life. So the, the prejudice or the preference that, that uh, my teachers who practiced in both traditions uh, felt when they came back was that the four foundations in the way we teach it, not necessarily better, but worked more, were applied more easily for Westerners. So that's a little bit the reasoning about why we teach. We teach in another Burmese style, which is Mahasi Sayadaw. Okay, is that... Hi. I guess the, the question I have um, is emotional. I'm thinking a lot about emotional triggers lately. Um, through a lot of therapy and 12-step work, I'm really coming to grips with what my triggers are, and um, they seem to be getting more and more um, raw. Mm -hmm. And um, there's still that, I, I can't find that split second between seeing when I'm being triggered and reacting to the trigger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess Mm-hmm. So the working with the skillful means of seeing what's triggering us or what we might be reacting to and learning how to not act based on that emotional reaction. And it's one of the skills that actually mindfulness is really good, helpful, quite helpful. Um, the Let's see. Maybe the best way I know to, to practice is just to sit. Because even if you sit, you'll notice even if you sit down here tonight or you sit down for any length of time, at a certain point something will happen that you'll have a reaction to. You know, maybe it'll get too hot in here and you'll start having a reaction to that. Or maybe I'll talk too long during the instructions and you'll have a reaction to that. Or maybe I won't talk enough and you'll have a reaction to that. Whatever, whatever it is. Um, 
and, and the reactions, and the, first of all, the first thing to do is see that we're having a reaction, and that's what mindfulness can provide. A basis, a ground, a skillful means to develop the capacity to be aware and then not to react. And partly you're not going to react because you're sitting in a room full of people who are all being quiet. So you're not going to say, Eugene, say something, right? You're not going to do that, generally. Once in a great while, somebody does something, but it's rare. (laughs) Mostly they tell me later, you know, that whatever was wrong. But, um, but, but, but um, it gives us an opportunity to begin to investigate, be curious, be interested in our reaction. And you hear the flavor of that. That's a little different than how we usually act towards our reaction. Either we act out of the reaction or we judge the reaction. Or even if we act on it, then we judge it, both. So mindfulness asks us not to judge it with harshness, not to judge it as um, something wrong but actually seeing it's part of the terrain of our practice that will lead us to awakening. And one of the first steps in awakening, one of the first things we awaken to is, oh, we don't have to be in the thrall of our reactivity. And then to learn how to sit in the fire of our reactivity is fierce practice. Some people are more emotionally, have stronger emotions. For them, it's very, it's a fire to sit in that in that um, um, flame. It's a fire to sit in that heat. Um, But it's doable. And that's really the good news. And if you can learn to sit in it, it can really burn up a lot. So, um, I forget your name. No, no. Yours. The fellow? Todd? Yeah, so when Todd asked about clarifying emotions... Uh, through the sweeping, it's a similar process because you don't go with the reactivity. You'll notice it, but you keep going with this sweeping. It begins to ground you in something else. Here we do it a little differently. We'll be mindful if, if as we give instructions on mindfulness, we'll just start with the breath and body and we'll stay around there quite a bit. But at a certain point, we'll say, no, be mindful of the motion and let it rip. Let it Let's see it. Show me. Show me what you got. And then you can see the, the fire of anger or the, or the depth of um, sadness or the shakiness of fear without having to be afraid of the fear or judgmental of the anger. And there's a possibility for that whole identity to begin to dissolve. And then the emotion begins to clarify or purify in a certain way. And then we find ourselves here in a whole other way, a way that we can't get to through our minds. We can't do it mentally. We have to do it through our presence, our kindness, and our awareness. And I'm describing the body, the heart, and the mind, all of us, really opening to our experience. And the cool thing is, at a certain point, even when it's difficult, it's exciting. Because we don't know how reality will start to show itself at a certain point. And our emotions become a doorway for reality instead of something we have to feel bad about or judge or deny or try to get rid of. and being aware of it and being grounded in your body. I'm, I want to give the whole picture there. Then at what point do you do anything? I mean, do you ever get to, to act? Oh, of, of course. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm, yeah. I, I'm sitting in it, uh-huh. you know, and I, but I'm, I feel frustrated. Like, I think I'm never going to be able to do anything. I just have to sit in it. Right. Okay, great. That's, that's a great question. It's actually a very common question, which is the difference between receptivity and passivity. Because mindfulness asks for a receptivity of life, of a, a, a profound receptivity of life, a profound openness to life. But it's not saying you need to be passive. The question in terms of Dharma 
and of skillfulness is is can we clarify the reaction to see what the appropriate response is? Are we reacting out of the small sense of self, the body of fear, the sense of deficiency that we all know? Or can we sit there until that clarifies and then see, okay, now it's time to say no or yes or whatever it might be. And, you know, there's sometimes it feels like, oh, that takes a long time. But actually, as we practice, it can come much, much quicker that we can just see. I can see the reaction and I see, oh, what's my intention? What's really my intention here? Oh, I see. This is off. So I'm going to say no. This needs to stop. Or I'm going to say yes. Or I want this. Or I'm going to do this. And go for it all the way, wholehearted. So I hope that clarifies. And then, of course, sitting with the frustration that can happen Frustration is in the realm of, on the continuum of frustration, irritation, you know, dislike, aversion, anger, you know, rage, hatred. And that all, as we learn to sit in that fire, it will bring clarity. It, it will bring clear action instead of action based on some historical identification, fear, etc., etc. It can do that. Let's say it that way. There's, there's a great essay that I recommend to people. It's in a book called Being Bodies, Buddhist Women and the Paradox of Embodiment is the book. And the essay is the last essay in the book, Being Bodies, and it's by Joko Beck. And it's about sitting in this fire and, and how we do it and how we do it over and over again and the kind of clarity that can come. And uh, personally, I think it's one of the most liberating pieces that we see we can have our full humanness, we can have our full emotionality, our full hearts. We don't have to be afraid of it, and we don't have to be um, just thrown around by it either. All the way in back. If you could stand, please. I'm giving you the Zen answer first. <laughs> um, a couple things I can say. Um, one is the Buddha, at one of the misunderstandings is that Buddhism teaches that there's no self. That's not actually how, how the Buddha talked about it. He, in, in fact, one of the suttas where he's asked directly, is there a self or is there not a self or is there no self, he won't answer. And when the person leaves and his attendant said, well, why didn't you answer? Why didn't you tell him? He said it would be too confusing and not helpful. And the Buddha was very keen on what's helpful or skillful. What he does teach over and over again is to begin to examine, look, pay attention to what's not self. And that's something that's not so hard to do. So, which part of your body is yourself? Is it your fingernails? Is that yourself? Or is it the hairs on your head? Is that yourself? Or for most of us, it would be the hairs on our head, right? Or is it your veins? Is that yourself? I'm asking here. Okay. What part of the body? He, would de he was a deconstructionist about self. To look at what part of the body is self. And generally, if you look carefully, you won't find a part of the body that's self. You will find a body which is made up of all these parts. You'll even find Eugene 
which is the name somebody gave to this body quite a while ago now. And it's a really good idea, it's a good concept. But this concept holds that whole phenomena together in some sense. The problem is that we reify the concept. We concretize the concept and we don't see the reality of what's here. That what's here is impermanent, it's not self, and that if we attach to it, there'll be a certain kind of suffering. So that's the simplest way to begin to look at the not-self question. You could look at it in your mind. What part of your mind is yourself? Is it your thoughts? I hope not. <laughs> I mean, really. Half the time they're totally boring and the other half the time they're totally ridiculous. You know, but we take things to be ourself. This is the question. And I want to be careful here because remember he just stressed to see, pay attention what's not self and just to let go of it. it. We have so many ideas already overlaid on this idea of no self, that there's no self. And if there's no self, we'll look like something. We have an idea about it. But the Buddha was very interested in going beyond ideas, beyond opinions, beyond history, beyond concept, to see what's the reality. What's here right now as we're talking? What's here when we're silent? And then the self, or not self, in some sense, at a certain point it becomes secondary to the presence that's here, the liveness that's here, the, the impermanent realness that's here. Kala Rinpoche always said, we live in illusion in the appearance of things. There's an appearance of self. We live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing, no thing, no reification, no thingness. When you, dis when you discover this, you will see you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Okay? Is that okay for now? Okay. Just good to remember your name and which car is yours. Which has? Yeah. I've been doing uh, some meta practice recently, and one of the things I noticed is that as the meta phrases are going through my head, I, I begin to lose touch with my body mm -hmm. and my breathing. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the two are supposed to be in, in the practice mm -hmm. integrated in any way, or whether you just stay with phrases that you're repeating. So the metta practice, for people who don't know, is loving-kindness practice. And it's in, in its uh, intensive form, you just repeat certain phrases, well-wishes, loving-kindness phrases, over and over and over and over and again. And you can do that for uh, 45 minutes or a day or a week or a month or three months. It's a very powerful practice to do it intensively. And one of the experiences that can happen is there can come a certain kind of samadhi and the body falls away, the breath falls away. That's fine. You can just stay with the, the, uh, the phrases. Just keep staying with the phrases. Stay with the phrases. Stay If that's the kind of practice you want to do. And it's a good, good practice to do. Um, you can say them from your heart center and see what that's like. And so some people say it more from the head center, but you can say it from the uh, heart center. You can say it from the belly center. When I've done metta, I've done it from all three centers or from no center. And just depends. You can play around, experiment. See what it's like to say the phrase from your belly and what impact that has or what, what it, impact it has when you say it from the heart and also in terms of your connection to your body or not. Some people really like to connect with the uh, body when they do metta. Some people, it doesn't matter. Personally, I, I tend to like it, but at a certain depth of practice, it just doesn't matter. But uh, generally, especially at first, first few days or something, I like to actually coordinate it with the breath. One phrase with one 
breath. So the, the most traditional phrases are, um, may I be safe, may I be happy, uh, may, may I, actually I'll say it very traditionally first, may I be safe, may I have mental well-being, may I have physical well-being, may I have uh, ease. And then, there's, and then you can customize the phrase so it really speaks to you and for you. You know, may I be safe, protected, free from inner and outer harm. Uh, may I abide in happiness, the highest happiness. May I have um, physical health and strength. May I live with ease of well-being. And then people go beyond that. You know, may I accept myself completely. It's really more a compassion phrase, but you can do it in the metta. Or may my heart be filled with loving kindness. Or may my body be filled with loving kindness. Um, there was a beautiful phrase somebody said, maybe it was just this, but one of my friends who did um, a year of loving-kindness practice, she, I think she said, may my mind, may my mind, uh, I can't quite remember it, something like, may my mind be filled with loving-kindness, but it was something a little more beautiful than that, a little richer. I can't remember something. May, may my mind be saturated with loving kindness. It had a really lovely flavor to it. So experiment a bit, but stay with the phrases. Stay with the phrases if you're going to do metta practice in that way. Okay. Um, I've, I've been noticing recently when life is really rough and kind of down, it's I find it really easy to practice and to make it more of a life style. Mm-hmm. When things are kind of upbeat and great, it's a lot harder for me to practice. I'm recognizing it probably because when things are down, I'm all about the impermanence. Like, yeah, I'm happy that that's impermanent and I grew up with that. It's really good. It's like, wait, I don't want this impermanence. I kind of like how things are going. And I'm just wondering if you can offer some advice on how to work with that so that. I'm not using my practice, this is another way to yes. attach another version. Uh-huh. Good. That's a really good good question. We all have some the what what this is called is spiritual materialism. Spiritual material we all have some of this. You're you're definitely not alone. We all have it at different levels, in different ways, where we practice because we want it to do what we want it to do. We want it to get rid of the bad stuff and then, you know, have, we want to have a good time. And, you know, it's fine, it's good to see that, but it brings up a deeper question about the level of impermanence you're seeing, right? You're seeing that things are impermanent. You're not quite seeing how impermanent you are or how impermanent this life is. And, you know, maybe you don't have to yet. Life Life will teach you, no doubt about it. You know, we all know how fragile life is. We all know how temporary it is. But depending on age, often, it's easier to know when you're 50 than when you're 20. It just is. 20, it looks like you have forever. 50, no, no way. You know, you can fantasize for a certain amount of years, but you just, you know, you start looking at the obituaries and those people your age are dying, you know, regularly. so what that's called in Buddhism is samvega, an urgency comes. An urgency that's a good urgency, it's considered a skill. It means, okay, I have this life, I don't know how long it's going to live, I don't even know what happens afterwards. You know, in Buddhism they say, oh, maybe there's more lives. Well, let's see. We don't know for sure. So then it asks us, well, what do we really want? What do you really want? And, and this, is a, this is a traditional Dharma question. Suzuki Roshi would say to his students, what's your heart's innermost desire? Innermost desire. What's your heart's innermost desire? And to begin to start to orient towards that. And if you start to trust that, it will take you deeper and deeper into the Dharma. Even if at first it doesn't look like that. Maybe your heart's innermost uh, desire at first is, I want to get married. You know, for some people, that's their deepest desire first. Go ahead. Do it. Get, get what you want. Whatever it is you want, get it. 
but keep your eyes open in the process because your inmost desire will keep clarifying. So like marriage, people want to be, they want to feel um, loved. We want to feel whole. We want to feel connected. We want to feel, a, you know, we want to feel like we're part of something. Those are all really, really important motivations that if we keep looking, if we keep looking very deeply, we will find the Dharma in there. That we, will want, we want to find our wholeness. We want to find our deepest connection to reality. So, so often the first thing we, we want, it, you know, we should go, I actually encourage people to go for it and see if it gives you what you want. If it actually satisfies the heart's inmost desire. Because at a certain point, it, it'll, it'll be good. It could be good. But also, you know, like marriage. You know, it's dukkha at a certain point. It's, it's a problem. You know, it'll be good. The honeymoon phase is usually pretty good. And it could be really good marriage the whole time. But the, the, one will find some dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction is not a mistake. It's actually not a problem with the marriage. It's because there is more of an existential yearning for the truth of who and what we are. And until we deal with that, grapple with that, and come to terms with that, then everything of the world will actually fall short a little bit. Because that's the nature of the things of this world. They have their place, and they have their time, and they have their goodness. You know, in the teachings for householders, the Buddha said, oh, the not only should householders accumulate things, but they should enjoy what they accumulate. How's that? Did you all know that? <laughs> I want to make sure you know that, that that's part of the teaching for householders. And partly he does that, he says, because we're householders and because the things of this world, they're not bad. But also he knows that the heart's inmost desire is for something a little deeper than the things of this world, whether you call it wholeness or freedom or love or liberation or enlightenment, whatever you, you want to, somewhere all of you have that, whether you actually know it or not yet. It's there. It wouldn't, you wouldn't be here otherwise. And the first movement might be to feel a little better and not to suffer so much. And that's a good thing. But then at some point we have to really ask, okay, what do we really, really want? And then go for it, whatever that is. And so there's a, there's a beautiful teaching here within that. If we learn to go for what we really want, we learn to trust our heart. And then we also learn that we can make mistakes, which is a very important part of the spiritual path, is learning how to make mistakes without judgment or recrimination or um, feeling foolish, but really understanding that um, it's an adventure. It's truly an adventure. So does that begin to answer your question? Maybe I'll say a little more specifically to what you said, which is, um, maybe I could say it this way. You haven't, oh, okay, I'll say it this way. You haven't yet maybe discovered the pleasure or joy of practicing with happiness, with delight, with joy itself, with pleasure. You know, we're motivated by suffering because we want to be free from it. But there's another level, and it's actually a little more subtle, a more sublime. And, and so we have to be a little more refined in our attention. What does it actually feel like when you're happy, when you feel good? or expansive, or open. We want to pay attention to those states of consciousness also. And the theory here is that, uh, I like to say it this way, when, when we pay attention to suffering with mindfulness, it will lessen. When we pay attention to happiness with mindfulness, it will grow. And the Buddha talked about greater and greater levels of happiness or more and more sublime levels of happiness, deeper levels of happiness. And they're, they're out there, and they're cool. They're, that's fun. It's like when you see, oh, it's not about getting what, you know, getting what we want is a certain level of happiness. 
But then getting settled in our body and in our heart is a certain level of happiness. And then the quiet that can come, it can be so delicious, so utterly um, thrilling in a very quiet way. And then the freedom, the openness, or the lack of being um, driven by habit or history or repetition um, and the freshness or staleness of a moment, you know, not being caught in the staleness of reality, but the freshness that's here. And the lack of, of veil, the lack of, uh, of um, um, uh, ideas and beliefs between us and reality, whether it's internal or external, it's, it's fun, I think. I'm making a little pitch here to see if I can <laughs> say check it out a little bit. Okay? Really, especially when you're feeling really good, say, okay, let me sit with this even for 10 minutes and don't clamp it down. Let it be as big as it wants, but see what it's like to let your mind mingle with that happiness or with that joy or with that pleasure, whatever it is. Okay? Let's see. Rachel, you've been waiting. Is there, is there ever a good reason to is there ever a good reason to be hard on oneself? No. There's a good reason to learn the difference between pejorative judgment of oneself, being hard on oneself, and learning how to make an objective evaluation of oneself. And by objective, I mean without judgment, without harshness, without recrimination, but actually being able to see where are we? Where are we? Whether it's in our meditation practice or how we acted with somebody else. Not to do it in terms of being hard on ourselves, but in terms of learning how to free ourselves. And, there's a, and we need it. We need some objectivity. Objectivity where... You know, we don't think we're a horrible person if we make a mistake or do something wrong. We don't think we're the best thing in the world when we do it right, but just seeing, okay, okay, this is what I need to learn, work on, pay attention to. And there is a way to be diligent and use a certain fire in practice. But I don't, I don't think of it anymore as being hard on oneself. I think of it really passionate. I, lo I love the passion of practice. Um, but I, I know how to do that now without being hard on myself because I've already done that. And it, it just doesn't work so well. And it's painful. And, I, you know, and there's enough suffering. I, I, I'm going to suffer no matter what. I don't need to add to it. I don't need to add to my own. And then hopefully learning how to do that I won't have to add to other people's also. Is that okay? Okay. Bhavani. Yeah, I, I know the Buddha talks about the importance of Sangha, and I was wondering if you could say something about um, if, if you talked about finding a Sangha and resonating with Sangha, or when it's time to make a different Sangha, you know, It's a, it's a big question you're asking and um, you know I, I generally think more in terms of sanghas these days like I have a number of sanghas not just one um, and one of the sufferings we have is that sometimes for whatever reason we outgrow a sangha or we change or the sangha change and it's not the same thing at times um, or we go through a phase where maybe it's you know it's like our family sometimes we have to go away from them and then we come back later because of our growth or change or need or maybe we don't even know why at times but it happens and I think, I think one of the hardest things is to really be open to letting our spiritual life lead us 
instead of us directing it exactly. And there's a, there's a quote from Suchito Bhikkhu. He says, I'm going to mutilate it a little, but it's something like, um, um, we really come into the spiritual life when we see that it has a, it has a will of its own that we come to respect and to follow. That, our, that, our, that the Dharma will, will take us places we, we don't know where it's going to take us. We don't actually know how it's supposed to go. And we plug in and we may stay for the rest of our life or not. We don't know. Um, I think one of the important things is to trust our heart and to see. And, you know, I, I think especially with any Sangha that we've been a part of, I think it's important to really value it and maybe we have to move away for a while, but I wouldn't, I'm not so big on totally burning bridges, you know, personally. I know, you know, I was a musician for many years and a big sangha around a certain kind of improvised music. And then my, my life changed and I gave up the music and it just went out of my life and people would say to me, oh, don't you play anymore? Because I really, you know, I played eight hours a day when I was playing and was very devoted. and. I would say no, and they said, don't you miss it? And I'm like, no. And, you know, and then recently, I started playing again. And it was just the oddest thing. It just kind of happened. And one of the beautiful things about playing again is I called up a couple of my old Sangha people from the, that world who are still playing. And, um, and what was beautiful was that the love was there immediately. Like it never had gone. And they were so happy for me that I was playing again. One guy wrote a piece. He's called, he sent me an email a day later. Hey, I, I was on the bus and I wrote a piece for you called The Return. You know? And it's cool. Now I, and we have a piece we're, we're going to work on together. <laughs> and it's just so sweet. And so, I, I, you know, especially something you've given your heart to, which if you really get involved in Sangha, you give your heart. Your heart is part of it. And I wouldn't burn my bridges or, or even be too fast, but just be open to see. And that can be the hardest time, is when you don't know. I know for myself, like around the music, there were five years where I, it just wasn't right, and, but it was hard to let go of. It was my whole life. I loved it. And slowly, slowly, the letting go happened. And then really when I let go, it was, it was fine. But I didn't rush it, or I didn't try to truncate that process. And I think that's important with any, any, you know, with Sangha, with relationship. We're talking about being related and how to relate. And the Buddha talked a lot about that. Is that okay? Okay. Did you want a question? Yeah, actually. Yeah. If I may. Um, I just had a question about compassion mm -hmm. and... Um, exercise without knowledge necessarily, knowledge meaning clear-sightedness. Um, sometimes when, when one exercises compassion without knowledge or clear-sightedness, it can lead to consequences or further consequences that are oftentimes very reminiscent of malevolence. Mm -hmm. How do you rectify that? Wanting to be compassionate but not necessarily possessing the clear-sightedness or knowledge and having it lead to malevolent effects even though you had good intentions and wanting to practice. Can, can you, in my senses, if you can stay, stay standing for a moment, my sense is that you're talking about something specific. Um, is that true? I'm, I'm speaking both as far as generalities yeah. um, in that I think you could provide me an answer that would really serve me well for many different areas of my, of my life. Okay. Um, but I am also speaking specifically because I often find myself in situations really having the intention of wanting to do the right thing, right. Um, but also having sort of a circular argument or debate around that because definitely that mantra of wanting to exercise um, what the Buddha would regard as compassion, but okay. knowing that if the outcome is essentially the same as malevolence, that puts me between a rock and a hard place. Can, uh, no, what I mean is, can you give me a specific example or of um, what what I, would I be what What do you mean? Then help me just one other. What do you mean by malevolence? Um, doing something with uh, intentions meant to hurt. So, if you were doing being compassionate, how would that end up being 
would that be somebody else would do something? I can take a silly example. Let's say a yeah. really elderly woman is walking across the street in Chinatown or something, and you see that she's humpbacked and yeah. she's suffering from severe osteoporosis, and she has three pink plastic um, right. groceries, and you really want to help her, right. and so um, you maybe you lunge forward and you try to grab one of the bags to ease her walk across the crosswalk. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is that she thinks she's getting attacked. Yeah. Okay, you, okay. She retaliates Good. and then you have that, That's great. Great example. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. No, no. No, no. It's a really good example because um, a few things. One, uh, there's really a lot here, but let's see if we can unpack a little bit. First of all, compassion is not wanting to do the right thing. Compassion is a state of heart that arises naturally when our heart is free, first of all, and then second of all, when suffering is there of some kind. So you see a woman walking across the street and she looks like it's having a hard time and a certain feeling, a certain kind of compassion for her suffering, and then there's an impulse to help, right? Now, compassion, as you're suggesting, needs to be um, imbued with wisdom. The wisdom here would be before you grab the pink bag to say, do you want some help? You know, because otherwise she's not going to know who you are. She doesn't know. People are not mind readers. And, and, it, and it's, it's sometimes it's surprising how simple it is. You're giving a certain, you know, and it's actually a simple answer I'm giving you. But, but sometimes we overdo it. We think compassion means something esoteric. But it's, or wisdom means something esoteric. But wisdom is just saying, you know, do you need some help? Do you want me to carry a bag? And then she can say yes or no. And she, she has, because you don't know if she's suffering, actually, totally. Now there's some other, you know, it's like, um, and, and let's just talk a little more about compassion. It's this, it's, a, it's, it's definitely in, in the Theravada, it's talked about as a quivering of the heart in light of suffering. It doesn't mean you do anything. That's not exactly what compassion means. You may choose to do something, you may want to do something, but, but at least in the original way the Buddha talked about it, he talked about it as this um, state of heart, state of mind, heart and mind being the same originally. And then there was, there's an emphasis put on compassion in the Mahayana in terms of the Bodhisattva path. And that's in saving all beings and, and saving all beings from suffering. But even there, even there the Buddha says in one of the famous suttas, the Diamond Sutra, he's, he's talking all about being a Bodhisattva means to save all beings out of compassion. But at a certain point, he says, but if a bodhisattva believes there are beings to be saved, they are not a true bodhisattva. And so he's bringing in the wisdom that we need to look deeply at what, what's actually happening here. So that's, okay, that's a couple levels. Let me give you a couple more. One is to, um, you're wanting to see how to allow your compassion to flower and act in the world. That's really maybe the heart of your question. Um, so that's something for you to study now and to really take it on as a study, an interesting study. Ask this question to every teacher you're around. Don't be afraid to ask it a number of times. Hear it from a number of different points of view. Start to read about compassion. Read. Um, you might read a book like How Can I Help? Because you really want to act. So read the book How Can I Help? Because we keep wanting to clarify also what does it mean to help? What is compassionate action? And what's our motivation? Because often our motivation can be mixed. There can be a very pure motivation. I already trust there is a very pure motivation. But that motivation can be mixed with some sense of help, uh, some sense of self, some sense of thinking we need to do something or we're not okay if we do, don't do something or something like that. And, we, and the wisdom is to begin to clarify that. Because the more we can act from the pure motivation, I think the, the better off we are. But I wouldn't let it stop you from acting either. But it's always good to ask people if they need help. 
and then they they can respond. Is that is that helpful? Great. And and the Buddha, when he was enlightened, you know, he wasn't sure if he was going to teach. And actually, at first, he wasn't going to teach. And then a a Brahma god, the Brahma god comes down from wherever the Brahma god hangs out, and and says to the Buddha, you, you should teach because there are people with little dust on their eyes and it would be for their good and benefit. And at that point, he surveys the world with his eye of wisdom, his, his um, uh, Dharma eye, and he sees the suffering of people. And he decides to teach out of compassion. But, you know, the Buddha didn't teach people who didn't want to hear him. He didn't just go up and... He actually does that. The first person he teaches, he, he actually has this encounter and the guy says something to him and he says, oh, I'm the Buddha and this and that. And, da, 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 da. and the guy just walks away like he's a little crazy or weird. And, but the second people actually ask him, well, what's happening with you? What's going on? And then he teaches. And after that, he would only teach when asked. That's how his compassion expressed itself in the world. So we need to stop. Good questions. Fun, fun to talk to you. Have this conversation. Um, let's see. Let's sit for a minute before we end. We'll offer the merit of our practice together here this evening. May we offer the merit freely. May it go out in every direction to beings in every world and every realm. And it may, may it be for their benefit, for their goodness, for their happiness, for their freedom. May all beings be happy and peaceful. And please remember, very important to include yourself when we make this offering. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering from the suffering of ignorance, of war, of division, of racism, of fear, of confusion, of greed. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together Realizing the truth, the truth of our Buddha nature, our true nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. <clears throat>